This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 12, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Cass Sunstein is no longer at the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, but he's continuing to make a case for less regulation. He's better known for a concept known as libertarian paternalism. Cato Institute senior fellow Walter Olson explains. Cass Sunstein is one of the more interesting figures in the Obama administration, and and he's also known as uh, the great popularizer of the the nudge theory, which it, uh, kind of distinguishes, if I may put words in his mouth, uh, between a soft and a hard paternalism. The hard paternalism, which he agrees uh, gives him pause, is uh, when you uh, when the government is just trying to run people's lives, it uh, knows better than they what will make them happy. It's going to prescribe uh, sobriety to the drunks and it's going to prescribe chastity to the people who want to sleep around and all the rest of it. He says, that's not the only kind of paternalism and please don't judge all of we paternalists by the excesses of the prohibitionists and the others. Uh, the distinction he makes is between so-called ends paternalism and means paternalism. Now, let me try to explain what he's getting at. Uh, ends paternalism is the bad kind or the bad cop. Uh, it is uh, the one that second guesses the whole meaning that people assign to their lives. It, it uh, you know, if it, it accuses you of being too lazy if you uh, value leisure heavily, and it says the government should stop that. If if you believe in a hedonistic approach to food or drink, it says you shouldn't. Enjoy that, and we're going to crack down. Uh, the mild, the allegedly mild and allegedly reasonable side of paternalism that he wants us to consider is means paternalism, saying, uh, "Look, you know, you're in charge of the big decisions of what kind of life you want to pursue, r- risky or safe. Um, but sometimes you make mistakes about how to get there." He compares this with GPS. He says, uh, "We don't want to second guess people's destinations, but sometimes uh, we can prove that they're taking wrong turns and making decisions that won't." make them happy even by their own lives. And that's where the government can do these more modest types of paternalistic things. Um, uh, you know, you want to lose weight, and if you uh, want to get fat, the government will let you get fat. But if you do want to lose weight, the government will uh, put a, a warning label here and perhaps a default uh, rule over there uh, that will help you stay on your own diet. So it's kind of seductive. It doesn't take the... Uh, direct onslaught against individual liberty of saying uh, liberty is a bad thing. Of course, there are other paternalists that that will do that. One of them was in the New York Times recently. Uh, But uh, he is trying to present a more reasonable case saying, uh, look, you are in charge of your own life, but government can sometimes nudge you to do things which you will yourself wind up agreeing with. Now, <laughs> so so let's uh, let's let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, Sunstein to me is, among other things, he is the great popularizer of the uh, uh, the school of behavioral economics, which uh, uh, grew up to challenge, in some ways, neoclassical economics with its strong emphasis on individual choice and on leaving people to be the judges of their own well-being. Uh, the behavioral economics school has come along with its uh, clever classifications of types of errors that we make and types of biases that we are all infected by and uh, <coughs> has argued with some interesting little 
case histories and some wider theories that uh, people uh, aren't always good in judging how best to steer toward their own goals. That people, for example, who want a comfortable retirement uh, may not save enough. Uh, and if you change the default rules so that the uh, uh, pension is automatically deducted from their paycheck rather than uh, uh, the default rule being you have you have to sign up for it, uh, many more people will do it, even though no one's freedom has been violated. And so there's this large literature, which is found very persuasive by many people in the political center. And this is not just Democrats looking for an excuse. In Britain, for example, uh, Cameron's conservative government has adopted a lot of nudge-style rules and, and says that it wants to govern this way, too. So what is wrong with that? Now, I'm going to leave mostly aside the kind of um, grand critique. I would refer listeners to uh, – there's been some wonderful work by uh, Joshua Wright, the economist and uh, Douglas Ginsburg, known as both a legal scholar and as a federal judge, uh, in which they take a more systematic look at where uh, the literature may go wrong intellectually. Uh, let's get to the policy side where um, a lot of this is uh, a uh, renewed set of claims for expertise. You know, we are experts in how um, saving for retirement work or how warning labels work. And you as the consumer are not as good as this. Uh, let us make the rules and really, uh, you know, we'll make you happier in the long run. Now, <clears throat> the world is complicated. And I, for one, I'm happy to admit that people make mistakes uh, as consumers, uh, as every other role that they play in life. It's kind of interesting because if you look at various capitalist institutions, they also sometimes uh, will provide you with the service of overriding short-term judgment uh, in order to help you turn long-term goals. Banks used to have these programs where you would have to save a little every week um, so that you'd have a lot of money uh, for your Christmas expenses. And this at the time was attacked by lots of liberal consumer advocates saying, oh, well, the bank is doing this to make money and they won't have to pay you as much interest and so forth. And yet, people valued that service as they value some other things like layaway because they realize they're not necessarily as good at saving. You can find the same thing in the, in the area of diet and, uh, and, and obesity. So, uh, you know, part of the claim here is not just, uh, you know, that we know of more clever methods for you to gain your own goals, but uh, we're, uh, we get to use the power of government to do that. You know, not just um, write articles in the business press saying that it's better to arrange fringe benefits this way, but have the government begin handing down rules. And their, uh, I think their own logic, which is that uh, people can make mistakes in surprising ways, uh, uh, it can be turned against them because we don't know all of the side effects of nudge projects. Uh, we, we know, for example, that when uh, you aren't forced to save but have to make a decision to save, uh, certain types of people uh, solicit your business. If everyone automatically is saving without even paying attention to it, maybe people will come along and pitch riskier investments at your employer. Um, it's very hard to predict how that will all play out, and I don't think they necessarily know themselves. So um, when they say... I mean, the perfect example came up today in a study reported on the Los Angeles Times about Bloomberg's drink ban. And uh, the argument from the nudge side has been, well, uh, let us make the beverage serving smaller because anyone who really wants to quaff their thirst with uh, you know, a lot of drinking soda can just buy two or three or four of them. Now, what does the new study say? It says that people seem to consume more when uh, beverages are made available to them in small bottles or, or small services. 
servings. Uh, and, you know, intuitively, we've kind of known this for a while. M&Ms are a really dangerous candy because you, it's so hard to know uh, the difference between, uh, you know, seven of them and ten of them. Uh, small bottles of soda are uh, another thing that are very ambiguous for dieters. Uh, so I would say step one in uh, resisting the the soft or or means based paternalism is just to say right no, you know you're right we're not total experts about our lives and you aren't either a similar example uh, publishing calorie counts on menus oh, it's, it's another not, of my favorite examples it's because, not clear what how people are going to be. Uh, Sort of there, incented to make a make a choice. There is about some evidence buy. that males. I mean, you just know this would be young males. Uh, actually, will order things with more calories once it becomes explicit through uh, calorie counts on the menu, uh, which are the really rich things. It's like, hey, I never realized that w- that's probably going to be good, I, and I wouldn't have tried that. And it's got 900 calories. <laughs> they may actually be consuming more calories uh, where that rule has gone into effect. Well, I'm thinking of the other example of. The, the super rich thing being on the menu and the super low thing being on the menu and somebody trying to moderate themselves among this range and saying, oh, I'll get the I'll get this more caloric thing than I otherwise would. People negotiate guilt in many ways. And, and as you say, picking a middle uh, course is often among them. It's one of the reasons why uh, we, we wonder about uh, you know, the harm reduction programs. Uh, again, there's the evolutionary approach of saying let people try a lot of different approaches, uh, including the thriving literature that we have about what are the best ways to keep your weight down, what are the best ways to save for retirement. Anyone who wants information on that, which consists of much of the population, has a fantastically large literature uh, proffering different points of view or short-circuiting that debate by having the government say, look, we know how to diet. Do it this way. We know how to save. Do it that way. Is there any consideration given to the idea that by making the right choice easier, by making the wrong choice harder, that you're actually harming people? Well, people who have been deprived of an actual choice certainly will often feel that they've been hurt. Now, the argument for the soft paternalism is uh, we're not actually taking away a choice in this area. Uh, we're forcing people to um, uh, consider the consequences by slapping on a warning label or uh, changing a default rule, but they can still pick the other side of the default. You know, the, These are the arguments. And there's a number of responses to that. Uh, one is, uh, at some level, people can feel as if they're being babied, uh, and indeed they are being babied, uh, even if they are free to get up and leave the room. But secondly, the theory that warning labels and prescriptions of default rules and so forth are cost-free uh, is one that does not survive very much exposure to how regulatory programs actually work in Washington. It is true that sometimes they are cheaper than a substantive prescription of you can't have this thing anymore. Uh, sometimes they are cheaper, sometimes they're not cheaper. Uh, if you look at um, areas like um, mandatory environmental labeling in California, which has resulted in ridiculously expensive litigation going on year after year after year. Uh, if you look at the um, uh, problems for um, you know safety data sheets for uh, chemicals, and by chemicals I mean things like dish, dish soap <laughs> that uh, increasingly are pushed out to uh, school classrooms and all sorts of places where people didn't used to need paperwork before buying some, uh, you know, Dove liquid to to wash the dishes with, um, you know it's only uh, in 
the classroom that you can imagine that uh, these things are cost-free. In practice, they will often make the difference between a lot of choice and less choice. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at cato.org.